Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies. I'm Crawford Gribben, the host of the channel. Today we're going to be talking to Zoe Knox. Zoe is the Associate Professor in Modern Russian History at the University of Leicester and we're going to be talking to Zoe about her new book, Jehovah's Witnesses and the Secular World from the 1870s to the Present. It's just been published by Palgrave. Zoe, welcome to the show. Well thank you very much for inviting me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I can. So my early work was actually on uh, quite a different religious tradition. Uh, I worked on the Russian Orthodox Church and I became very interested in the church's role in the late Soviet period and the early post-Soviet period, the way it was shaping discourse in Russia about religious pluralism, about democracy, about human rights, about religious tolerance. And the more I looked at this, the more I came across one particular religious community that troubled the leadership of the Russian Orthodox Church, and that was a community called the Jehovah's Witnesses. They weren't a group I knew much about, but what I quickly became aware of was that the language used to demonize this religious community in the Soviet period and in the post-Soviet period was very similar despite the fact that these were two very different regimes. Mm. And so I started to ask questions about what it was about this particular community uh, that caused such controversy and that led them to be a target. And that is how I ended up uh, researching this book we're talking about this morning. That's fascinating. So your earlier work was in a different, a, di- a different subject precisely, I suppose, but many of the same themes come through into this one. Um, Tell us a little bit about the Jehovah's Witnesses. How many are there, first of all? So the Watchtower Organisation, that's the the corporate body of Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they keep uh, very uh, clear records on the number of witnesses worldwide. So I'm able to answer that with some precision. They count just over 8 million members worldwide. Um, it's worth saying that there's something quite distinct, I think, about the way they do calculate their membership and the way they do arrive at that figure, that that number only includes active witnesses, um, those that are uh, involved with congregations and that are regarded as witnesses in good standing, um, that have some uh, presence in uh, in congregational life, I suppose. Um, so 8 million doesn't sound like a lot when we're talking about the figures worldwide, but actually when you consider that the vast majority of those will be actively involved in the organisation, uh, that seems to be far more significant than numerically. Huh. Now, in that 8 million, or among that 8 million, there's a number of famous people. 
Yes, that's right. Um, the organisation doesn't do much to play up its celebrity membership. Um, this is not something it celebrates the way, for instance, the Church of Scientology might. Um, but probably the most famous uh, witness of, of modern times must be Michael Jackson. Um, also Prince, uh, the Williams sisters, the tennis players, uh, they're some of the uh, the key celebrities, I suppose, that, uh, that emerged from this tradition or were raised in this tradition, or in some cases converted later. As in Prince's case, he was converted by one of the members of Sly and the Family Stone. Huh. Uh, would, would, would each of these individuals be regarded as being in good standing? Uh, that's a good question. There was some material in Watchtower publications after Michael Jackson's smash hit Thriller was released um, that condemned the connections to the occult and warned young people not to be drawn into... Um, not to be drawn into belief systems um, that uh, in any way kind of referenced um, the occult or the undead. You might remember the the video clip featuring those kind of zombies yeah. um, rising from their graves and so on. Very seasonal this week. Yeah, yes, that's right. So, so that was um, that was criticised by the organisation uh, itself, and I think by the time he died, he wasn't regarded as a witness in good standing, unlike Prince, who I understand was. Interesting, interesting. Uh, at one point in the book, you describe uh, a habit in the earlier part of the, the movement's history of convening mass meetings, and I think you mentioned that one mass meeting in the early or later 1950s uh, was the largest religious gathering ever recorded in history. Well, it would be very difficult to be to be firm about that. It's certainly the way it was reported at the time. That's the way the Los Angeles Times reported it at least. This is an event that I would like to look at far more closely, and I think um, I might return and do some archival work on this. But it was in 1958, uh, and it was an international convention of Jehovah's Witnesses in held in New York City, uh, in the end, at a number of different um, sites across New York City, including uh, Yankee Stadium, the old polo grounds, which have since been uh, demolished, um, and some of the uh, baptisms happened off the um of some of the, the, the nearby uh, beaches. Um, but this was an enormous event, filled Yankee Stadium to capacity, and really it was a, that was the last time that the organisation tried to get witnesses from all over the world together in one place. They still have very large conventions and large meetings, but generally they have delegates from different countries rather than inviting every witness to, to come to one place. And actually a, a picture of Yankee Stadium filled to capacity is what's on the cover of the book. I found this such an interesting illustration of their global spread, of their expansion in post-World War II uh, America, and of the way they really generated a, a, a high profile um, right in the, you know, right in the centre of, of New York City. That's fascinating. So with, with that high profile in the centre of the world's most important city, arguably, with celebrity members and with 8 million dedicated um, um, witnesses uh, operating uh, within the community, it's, it's hard sometimes to think of this in terms of what we would often consider to be a cult or a sect. Now, there's obviously there's, there's, there's a, a very, sometimes a very negative public opinion uh, about the witnesses 
um, you use a very specific kind of social scientific language to describe them. Could you just talk us through how you did that? Well, I was very aware from the outset that this was a, a project um, that I had to be very careful about and I had to be very aware of the kind of terminology I was using to describe this very controversial, very high-profile uh, religious community. Um, I sought to move away from any labels, really, even new religious movement that's often adopted um, as seen as a more um, impartial term to describe religious movements that emerged in, in late 19th century and 20th century. Um, even that was incorrect in lots of ways. They're not very new. They emerged in the 1870s. We can't really describe them as a movement. They're very highly organised. They've been around for 150 years um, by this stage. So I, I sought to free my study from some of the language which has dominated academic assessments of the witnesses. And in that way, I hope, take an approach that's more balanced than much of the historical scholarship on the organisation. Um, I'm not from within the community myself. I wasn't raised in this tradition. Um, and I hope that gave me the a critical distance that did make this more balanced. It's up to the reader to, to judge, I suppose. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really fine work. Um, you you emphasise this as a highly disciplined, highly centralised, highly organised uh, community. You, you also explain in various parts of the book that there's a schismatic tradition as well. There are other groups who trace common intellectual origins back to um, Russell, for example, um, and perhaps some other early um, Bible students, but they would see themselves as being different from the Watchtower organisation. Yes. Um, so I mentioned that the the movement first emerged in the 1870s um, and was formed around a, a really fascinating man, Charles Taze Russell. Um, he had a very high profile in his own day. His sermons were carried in newspapers right across North America and, and well beyond as well. He travelled a lot himself um, far and wide to the outer reaches of the Russian Empire, um, to Palestine, uh, all over the world. Um, he was a very controversial figure, but he was always also very willing to engage with other um religious figures of the day, so a number of high-profile debates, with, particularly with Protestant uh, theologians and Protestant clergy as well. Because he was such a controversial figure, um, when he died in October 1916, there were some very significant ruptures within the organisation itself. And some splits emerged then, but really ever since uh, there have been schismatic tendencies uh, within the movement. Most of the groups which emerged, and, and one sociologist has counted around 40 schismatic groups that emerged after Russell's death, most of them has long since disappeared. Um, there are a number of strands uh, that still have a, a profile, but they're far, far smaller than the Jehovah's Witnesses. Fascinating. Um, so the group emerged, what, in the 1870s, 1880s, I think? In the 1870s, they um, 
first it first began when <clears throat> groups of uh, men calling themselves ecclesias met to study scripture they wanted to return to the bible to clearly identify uh, some of the chronological elements that would tell them about the timing of uh, the second advent and these groups, as they became more coherent, started to, I guess, hammer out a more um, a, a clearer theology for themselves. And they came to have clarity on certain aspects of, of the Bible. And they came to call themselves Bible students to indicate their close study of, of Scripture and to give themselves an identity as a, as a community. Uh, so that's, that's how they began. So they were called Bible students um, until 1931 mm -hmm. when Russell's successor, a man called Joseph Rutherford, decreed that their name henceforth would be Jehovah's Witnesses. I should also note that although they called themselves Bible students in the early years of the movement, they were popularly known as Russellites, uh, and that's because of Russell's high profile and because, of course, he was the, the fountainhead. Fascinating. So from, from, from this very almost otherworldly emphasis of discussion in the 1870s, 1880s, the, the movement becomes an organisation with very clear emphases in terms of politics. One of the things that your book does really well is to show how this group has made an extraordinary contribution to human rights, for example. Yes, all over the world. They've really been at the forefront of uh, pushing for... Um, concessions from government authorities and state authorities that will allow them to minister in their own distinctive way and that will not put up any any obstacles to to their ministry um, they're also as a highly centralized organization they are uh, quite litigious and have been since the early days and they're very willing to take their cases to the highest courts which is why we see landmark Supreme Court cases in the United States, beginning in the late 1930s, continuing through the 40s and 50s, right up until the early 21st century, really. Um, and we also see multiple cases before the European uh, European Court of Human Rights as well, um, based on religious freedom issues. So it's because they're constantly pushing at the boundaries of what's acceptable religious practice, coupled with the fact they're willing to take their cases to the highest courts of law. Uh, those two things have led them to... Uh, I would argue, define religious tolerance uh, in many ways in countries all over the world. So, so we tell us, what's their attitude to politics in that case? If, if they are litigious, if they are pressing for their rights, and if others are actually benefiting from that pressing for their own rights, are, are they actively involved in the political culture of the communities in which they work? That's a really interesting question. <clears throat> The Watchtower organization teaches that Jehovah's Witnesses should stand aloof from the secular world because the secular world, the world around them, is corrupt. Um, and so they shouldn't take hold positions of political office. They shouldn't vote. They shouldn't lobby political parties or individuals. Um, they also think that it's not worthwhile being involved in civic organizations um, and so actually they 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 don't involve themselves um, in political organizations at all um, instead I suppose what stands in for lobbying 
is that legal uh, emphasis that I mentioned earlier. That's the way they put their case forward. So, Zoe, one of the ways in which you, you illustrate their apolitical stance is to indicate in how many places uh, they were made illegal during the Second World War. Yes, that's right. Their position of political neutrality, uh, this expectation that they'll stand aloof from the secular world, um, means that they won't be involved in fighting earthly wars and secular wars. So during times of war especially, they become a challenge to to the state who can't easily enrol them in patriotic projects or indeed get them to sign up for military service or in other ways perform um, duties when when conscripted. Um, And they were made illegal in Australia um, because there was a belief that they were transmitting military secrets to the Japanese. Uh, The witnesses had a number of radio stations in in Adelaide and they believed that um, it was through that that they were trying to undermine the, you know, the Allied war effort. Um, so, yes, illegal in Australia and, and, and uh, a highly controversial controversial case. So during times of war especially, they become problematic for, for states. Um, in the United States, for instance, it's during World War II that there is mob violence against witnesses um, all over America, um, burning of kingdom halls, uh, lynching, beating up individual witnesses, to the point that the ACLU uh, described it as um, the greatest level of violence against any religious community since since the Mormons. Mm. Um, so they do they are targets during times of war. Of course, in Nazi Germany, they're imprisoned in the uh, concentration camps for their refusal to uh, to heil Hitler, and in other ways uh, show their support for uh, for the regime. Hmm. Um, you, you give us an example of uh, witness activity in Australia. I think it is where. Uh, cars are driving by with loudspeakers parked outside or driving slowly past uh, churches where services are being held with a view to disrupting them. But uh, habits of evangelization have changed over the years for the witnesses too, haven't they? Yes, that's right. Um, And they've actually been quick to adopt new technologies um, in order to advance their, their their theology. So that example you gave of sound cars, it wasn't just in Australia that were used. Um, it was far more widely, so they would have amplified sound. This is another case in the States that went to the Supreme Court um, a little bit a little bit later but sound cars information marches they would call them where they would march through city streets wearing sandwich boards um, so they've adopted different technologies early on actually a, a first really in motion picture history was a film that was produced under Russell's direction um, which was narrated by Russell and then traveled all over the world being filmed for free to audiences um, yes yeah, so they they're, they're quick to adopt different techniques uh, in order to to spread their word a very recent change and this may be what you're what you're referring to are the uh, the literature stands mm-hmm. uh, that we started to see perhaps about five or six years ago, um, stands in major thoroughfares, outside train stations, shopping centres. There's often a stand outside my university. Um, And this is a recognition of changing times. People are busy. People are rushing past. Um, They're more likely perhaps to to catch somebody's eye walking past than they are to engage them in meaningful conversation on on their doorstep. So their ministry techniques are always evolving. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about their attitude to blood transfusions? So I have a, a, a the longest chapter in the book actually is on is on blood and is on the blood issue. The reason I was so interested in this uh, is because the witnesses' position on blood transfusion is fascinating. Um, they accept medical intervention of all different sorts um, and they're very familiar with different medical techniques and they, they welcome medical intervention where needed. It's only transfusion in particular that is uh, frowned on by the Watchtower organisation. Um, as you know, it teaches that witnesses should not accept blood transfusions. Um, this is a position that first emerged uh, immediately after World War Two, when transfusion became more commonplace. Um, and the leadership of the organization looked back at biblical scripture and interpreted certain passages as meaning that blood was a uh, was sullying sullying the body, that it was a corrupting uh, influence, and that it's true Christians um, shouldn't accept transfusion. And for that reason, they reject it for themselves and for their children as well. Well, after that chapter on uh, blood, uh, Zoe, you've got a big chapter on religion as well. How, how does this group or this movement um, re refer to or look upon Christian bodies, Christian denominations? So the Watchtower organisation teaches that Jehovah's Witnesses are the only true Christians and that every other denomination, every other tradition, every other iteration is, is errant. Um, and they believe, in fact, that the other churches are doing Satan's bidding by pulling people away from true Christianity. Um, they criticize especially what they see as the corrupt nature of the Christian churches, um, their cooperation with politics, uh, their cooperation with, with commerce, um, and they see them as essentially uh, corrupt, misleading, misguided. They're very critical of Christian, of clergy and other Christian um, traditions, uh, again, for leading people away from, from the true faith and from true Christianity. And that's the reason behind their lack of involvement in any kind of ecumenical projects. In fact, they firmly reject um, the whole idea of, uh, of uh, ecumenism. Um, and they don't cooperate with other faiths on, on any issues whatsoever. So heavily critical of, of the other churches. Now, this position has also changed over time a little bit, hasn't it? Didn't in the early days, I think you, you talk about um, Russell's somewhat cautiously positive view of Baptists, I think? Initially, Russell did say that some religious denominations were less errant than others uh, and that some were closer to the truth than others. And as I mentioned earlier, um, Russell was willing to debate some of the key issues of the day with uh, clergymen and with some theologians. So he was willing to, to interact and engage in dialogue um, with representatives of other Christian churches. Now, this changes quite dramatically with under Rutherford, who becomes president after Russell's death. Rutherford far more vehemently uh, rejects any 
uh, kind of uh, exchange, interchange, cooperation with other churches. And his screeds really against particularly Catholicism are one of the reasons why in many countries uh, governments move against the witnesses and start to see them as offensive. Um, and in many levels, uh, they, what they were doing was highly offensive. So I have in mind um, distribution of pamphlets in Quebec, for instance, in French and English and Ukrainian that were heavily criticizing the, the Vatican and the Roman Catholic hierarchy, painting them as uh, doing the devil's work and so on. And I think there was something like a million copies of that tract distributed around mm-hmm. Quebec. Wow. So a lot of the time the controversy is invited by their own, uh, the vehemence in their own language. And this is particularly in the 1930s and, and in the 1940s as well under President Rutherford. Mm-hmm. So Zoe, one of the interesting um, comments that you make in the chapter on religion is to compare Rutherford's position, or rather Rutherford's critique uh, of other religious bodies with the Marxist critique of religion. What what kinds of themes um, were you getting at when you made that kind of observation? Uh, Both Rutherford and um, Marxist ideologues see uh, religious institutions as being fundamentally exploitative and as trying to mislead people and close their eyes to the the truth and take their attention away from the real causes of causes of strife and and division in society and so Rutherford had some similar arguments i don't think we can take that comparison too far but sometimes when i'm reading some of the material in the 1930s it does sound close to to marxist critique um particularly when he said religion and commerce and politics were all part of the same kind of corrupt game i suppose so rutherford used the term religion in a very negative way uh, and he sought to disassociate the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses from religion. Now the way the organization has used that term has also changed since the, the Rutherford period um, but that was something I thought that drew a connection between between Marxism and Rutherford. The title of your book Jehovah's Witnesses in the Secular World from the 1870s to the present uh, wants us to think about what this relationship should be uh, and a, a lot of your work in the book uh, is very telling in terms of developing how witnesses have created a, a almost secular space for themselves within uh, the wider world in that their campaign for human rights, for example, or, or for state neutrality and religion um, somehow benefits them. Um, are they actually wanting a secular world or is the secular world something they wish to change? I think the the this the secular world really is is the fallen world, and they look forward to the day when um, when it will be destroyed, and what will be left will be the earthly paradise or the heavenly paradise that the true Christians, in other words, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, will will occupy. Um, so. But but they're in a very interesting position because they need to operate within the secular world in the meantime. And they go to ordinary schools and they live amongst non-witnesses um, and they strive to be good citizens and to follow the laws of the state whenever they don't contravene Jehovah's laws. So they're, they're in, in the world, but 
in profound tension with it, I suppose. And it's some of those tensions, some of those theological points that, that bring that tension that I've tried to explore in the book. Fascinating. Well, Zoe, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? What will your next project be? Ah, well, I'm very excited about this. Um, now that this book is finished, I am going to begin work on Russell. Um, there's not been much work on Russell, and he was the, the founder leader of Jehovah's Witnesses, huge um, of a household name in his day, uh, a prolific writer, um, engaged with some of the key thinkers of the day, and yet we don't have much on him. Mm. So I'm going to go back and look at where he came from and those early days of the movement, the development of the ecclesias and so on for my next for my next project. And I'm, uh, as you said at the beginning, I'm an associate professor of modern Russian history. Russell spent uh, went to the Russian Empire, and I'm very interested to know how, uh, when he did those speaking tours, he was received in, in, in those kinds of places. Places. This this very unusual message from this American religious organization. How is this being received in places like well, modern day Moldova, for instance, as huh. it now? Huh. That, that sounds really exciting. Well, listen, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for telling us about your book, Joe's Witnesses in the Secular World from the eighteen seventies to the Present. Uh, thanks for your time and take care. Well, thank you. Thank you for reading it so carefully, and, and thank you to your listeners. Thank you, Zoe.